right, Wayne, we've seen Spurs 2, United 2, the proverbial <laughs> game of two halves. Since the deja vu here with what happened against Sevilla, it's very, very, very similar. United completely in control and did their very, very best to throw it away. Yeah, we are here to fi- provide the finest analysis on the interwebs, as you just said before we came on. And I wanted to repeat it because it was such a good line. It was similar, but we have less, fewer excuses this time round. unfortunately. There are a few glaring things that we're going to have to address and talk about, which yeah. we, we can't sweep under the carpet and just say, oh, Martinez got carried off and a few dodgy decisions in there. No, this one is completely on the players. And I was an hour ago thinking, do you know what? After the abject disappointment of last week, this is going to be a fairly positive podcast to be on. And now it's feeling, I, I'm still fairly positive because I don't think the result was that bad. But no. unfortunately, we are going to have to pick the bones out with some pretty bad things. Well, yeah, we are. So let's start with the obvious place to start. Harry Maguire, it's all his fault. What the hell is he doing? No. <laughs> yeah, just replay all the greatest hits here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you. I, I'm not sure you could pin it either of the goals on Luke Shaw at all. In fact, he was having a fine game for most of it. There's just a collective collective lack of will, effort, tactical nous in that second half. I mean, we've seen the... I mean, so one, one Casemiro was poor again, and I think he has been for yeah. a few games in a row now. That's and fair. I, I, I'm not quite sure what I can pin it on, but he's, he's not the Casemiro that we saw earlier this season, and Ericsson can't last more than an hour, and United have nobody who can come into the midfield and control the game quite like he does. And Although, to be fair, United were bad from about minute 46 onwards. So it's not just about those the change with Ericsson, but that, that was part of it. And I, I, I'm really struggling. I wish I could just kind of go, what is it about United in these second halves, and especially away from home, that is leading them to drop off? Is it... A lack of confidence? Is it a lack of fitness? Is it they just go into their shell because they still don't believe? They're not able to kill teams off in the way that they really should have done with a, a Spurs side whose confidence should be absolutely destroyed. Yeah. No, I, I think it's fair to have those thoughts. What I will say is in wanting to give something of a caveat, we were missing a few players. I mean, the heart of defence is missing. And that's as big a caveat as you're going to get from me with that because, by and large, we were taking on a team low on confidence and we were suspect and vulnerable themselves and we should have been seeing that they, that they were there for the taking. On the other side, you would also be expecting a response from them, especially considering they're home and they've suffered one of, if not the most humiliating result in their history. I mean... Ironically mm. enough, they, I think they even lost heavier than that. At Newcastle, they lost 7-1 in the 90s, I think. But it wasn't right. as humiliating as, as that because of the the flurry of goals at the start. So you were going to see a response. And Spurs have been abject, but they do have a lot of quality. Now, I'm. it sounds like I'm making excuses for United. I think what went wrong in the second half, and this is just my analysis or my, my thoughts of this half an hour after the final whistle. I think what went wrong in the second half was a mixture of bad substitutes. I think we, we made the wrong 
substitutes. I think bad's maybe a, a strong word for it. Wrong substitutes at the wrong time. And we've got a combination of players who, and this may be critical in the running, I, I think we are now, we were just saying, the last thing we said before we came on air was it wasn't a bad result. It was a bad performance, but it wasn't a bad result. Based on the context of the way that the league shaped up in the last week and the fact that four points from either from either of these two games, four points mm-hmm. like against Spurs and Villa, would fa- be fairly comfortable for us in terms of navigating the rest of the season. And I think we have a combination of players, and maybe some of them played tonight, where they know that. And we are in a, a bit of a comfort zone and the difference between third and fourth, which is realistically what we're aiming for, the difference between third and fourth doesn't matter much to them. So on a game-by-game no. game basis, it's not affecting our game as much as it should be, whereas the big difference at Tenog has tried to impress upon the players with this stringent policy of, playing as strong a team as he can throughout every competition. Now he can't do that. I think now we're seeing the consequence of it because we're seeing a few players in there who don't understand and, and perhaps never suffered the consequences of high highs and lows. You know, the bipolar Manchester United of the last six years because they're, they're still in and around the squad. And so it doesn't matter to them if we relinquish a 2-0 lead at Spurs because it's still a decent result at the end of the day nobody's head's going to be put on the chopping block for it. And ultimately, in the long game, it doesn't really matter that much. Now, I suspect that that's not the message that Ten Hag will be thinking about. Because no, I think that he won't be. Yeah. Exactly. He'll be feeling fairly ruthless about it. So if I want to be really positive about this, I could say it's, it's a good kick up the backside for the manager, like, like Brighton was, like Sevilla was, in a way that you can look at these players and say, I'm finding out the answers that I need to... That, don't get me wrong, Sevilla was costly, but in terms of the long-term benefits of what that competition was going to bring, it was meant to bring Champions League football. So if we get it through the league, the the cup yeah. embarrassment comes with a kind of like a collateral consequence of something that's fairly positive in a way that it makes up the manager's minds on a, a few of these players. And I'm not saying that we didn't know these answers already. But what I'm talking about is in a situation where we generally feel that we're fairly comfortable in the Champions League spot. If we do get there, then these performances will be definitive. If, if, it, costs us sure. a champion, if it costs us a Champions League, where are at the end of the season having a completely different conversation? I'm just trying yeah. to take a positive out of this, looking and thinking, the, these are bad individual and collective performances in some respects but when you put it against the bigger picture maybe it's it's a decent time to have them i mean look it's it's totally fine to all draw given the united six points ahead of spurs with a couple of games in hand totally fine of course it's just that united two nil up against the side that ship six the previous week are on yeah. their second interim manager of the year and really could have been ruthless and just took their foot off the gas, even even just before half time, and then came out. And I wasn't even sure that Spurs made a real tactical change until until Richarlison went off and Kulusevski came on on about the hour, and then they had an extra man in midfield. 
it's not like they really made a change. Yeah. Th- this was a team there for the taking that is not in a good place that, okay, Ryan Mason said before the game, we have to be pragmatic. And so they went to three at the back. It didn't really help them, did it? And, and so the frustration is that United eased off or allowed Spurs back in. And I think it really was that more than than Mason going in there and throwing teacups around or, or something and, and getting a reaction out of Spurs. This is a team whose confidence clearly looked totally destroyed in that first half. You can't suddenly stick something in the halftime orange juice or whatever and make it magically better when the team's confidence is that, that short. I, th- I think United just stepped off and then, of course, the, the fatigue crept in. I mean, we really are going to have to find a solution next season to, to an alternative to Ericsson. Like, yeah. you know, just because the drop-off when you bring Fred or Scott or Sabitzer on in terms of the ability to control the game is just huge. Just huge. Yeah. And Casemiro, sorry, Ten Hag took some pelters on social media for the changes. I mean, I don't even blame him, really. it's He needed to inject some impetus into the game I guess he assumed that Fred would Fred would be able to give that through his energy and Fred had an absolute mare he came on just started giving the ball away which they all then caught there was a period for about 15 minutes in the early part of that second half where they just couldn't pass to each other and and then towards the end of the game and I'm we got away with it because Spurs has some good opportunities in that second half. Towards the end of the game, they kept going back to Dave, and I was just like, he's going to scuff one of these. And somehow he didn't. I was just like, my God, you're asking for trouble here. Some Somehow got away with it, because we really could have lost that second half. I mean, they had two great chances before they scored. Yeah. And then obviously they, they scored the two, and it's, it's worrying. It's really worrying. And, and you look how City are playing at the moment and that cup final's there. And I'm like, oh my God, this could be... We all, we all desperately we desperately need to win that FA Cup final, don't we? Because City are going to bloody win the league. They're the best team left in the Champions League. And we yeah. need to find a solution. And you were saying, well, maybe they're dropping off because it feels quite secure. And, and realistically, they shouldn't blow the top four now. But shouldn't they be looking at that cup final going, we want to... We're on the spot in that side. Or maybe there's just not enough competition yeah. because they all know that the drop-off from the first 11 to what comes after that is too big. You, yeah, I think you make a good point. Overall, if you're talking about a squad that we perhaps don't know, but we do know this squad, and I don't think that a single game or the enticement of a cup final means that much to them in isolation, particularly one against Manchester City. I don't think, for example... And I'm not calling Martial for a bad performance. I'm, I'm talking about his general sort of demeanour and attitude and what we know of him from the eight years. Do you think? Well, this is I'm, this is rhetorical. I'm not asking you for a response. All, all listeners, by the way, I know what the response is going to be: universal and very quick. Do you think that the enticement of a Manchester City Cup final is going to be the thing that Martial is? Oh, do you know what? I really need to be a part of that considering now we played against Brighton on Sunday and considering how strangely out of sorts he seems to be in a team that's pretty much set up to get the best out of a player like him. And and he's not the only one, like I said. There are, there are plenty of other players that you can point the finger at through willingness or through it, 
I don't want to say ineptitude. I don't mean that. It was a word that was falling out of my mouth. But what I mean is not being good enough. And I'm not as... we are. I'm just checking the date, April 27th. I'm not as concerned about the cup final as you are yet because I do think this is a fits and spurts kind of team. And I think that a run of two or three games can change the way that this team feels in... in especially this season, in buoyancy and, and mood that... We know we had an abject performance against Sevilla, but you have a penalty win after a nil-nil against Brighton. And he suddenly felt a lot more like there was a spring in the step going into this game, even though, theoretically, it shouldn't have been. He should have been like, oh, yeah. God, that was a bit flat. But he did. It did feel like a spring in the step. And the reason why is because Ten Hogs brought that fight back. And we did play a lot better against Brighton. And we never, even against a vibrant front, front line, we never looked like giving too many chances away. So you go into tonight's game thinking, all right, we shouldn't be as porous as the back as we have been. And then that second half comes in. And and I, I do, there's a part of me that really does put it down to this comfort zone thing. I don't want to give Spurs too much credit because I think what you were saying there about the vulnerability of the team, I do think that that's fair. And I do think that it's right. One thing I would say about it is that when you're looking at United to be clinical, and I think when it was 1-0, five minutes before half time, everyone was like, do you know what? We need a second goal here because, like, we're not, we are toying with them a little bit, but we need that second goal. So you get the second goal, like we did. And all of a sudden, you're thinking, well, United have got a second goal now. They've got a buffer. And you're not thinking of the third goal, really. You're not. But the, the, the way that they started the second half, immediately you were thinking, United need that third goal. And you shouldn't yeah. be thinking like that about a team at that level. I mean, yeah, all right, you do get comebacks and stuff like that, but you shouldn't have a team that's so vulnerable that they can get two goals in front. Because really, yeah. I was going to message you at some point in the second half when they were coming back, and I was going to say, Ed, what a good title for the podcast is Lads, It's United. You know, like, because... <laughs> like, no, because... Yeah, no, it would have been a good one. But that's the, the, that's the spoiler alert. Like, So we've used that title even though we didn't lose, right, by the way. so Because I've, I've dropped it in there, so you don't use that as a title. <laughs> because that would be pretty bad. But do you know, you know what I'm saying is that, like, we no, are... No, completely, we, yeah. We have become, unfortunately, we've become that sort of hybrid of Arsenal and Spurs that we mocked for a long period of time. And don't get me wrong, I, I feel like we're on the progression out of it. But as soon as a team like Spurs, who have been feeling vulnerable and they do feel like they, they might be able to get way back into the game, they can sense a vulnerability in United. Now, I do want to keep adding this little caveat that we didn't have the central defence, and they do have a top-class attack. I know Son and you know, Kane plugged away for a long time. Son was abject in the first half. He was fantastic in the second, as we know he can't be. He was like a completely different player, by the mm. way. And as soon as they brought off Richarlison, it looked like, well, they've, they're, they're looking like they going to actually threaten instead of argue mm-hmm. all the time. But, yes, it does come back to our United were controlling the first half, and you say, all right, well, 2-0 should have been enough, but, yeah, they should have been 3-0. Should have been. They should have been 4-0. And, and yeah. you know what? I'm going to give them a little bit more slack because when it was 2-1, Fernandez went through. His play was absolutely exceptional. He should have made it 3-1, and that would have probably killed the game off. Probably, um, yeah. yeah. And, and on these moments, games are won and lost, or drawn, in this case. I, we, <laughs> we haven't even talked about any of the goals. I mean, it started off so well for United, and, and Sancho, who always thinks look, looks better with 
Fernandez and Eriksson in the team. They just seem to understand him well yeah. and what he brings. It was a really nice finish for the first goal. And you can see what it meant to the his teammates as well. Everyone is willing him to yeah. be good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he seems he, like a nice lad. He's obviously been through a tough time. We want to get the best out of him. We know he's better than this. And it was a great finish. Yeah. That's what you can do. He made a decision. He made it. Like He got he the did. ball and he went, do you know what? This is what I'm going to do. Ericsson did make that goal for him in a certain way because I, you could see him sort of, he had the ball, he's moving with it. It's like, what do I do? And Ericsson made that goal for him because he made the space. In a way that sometimes Luke Shaw for as brilliant as he's been this season, Luke Shaw can take the road into the middle too often and it leads Sancho isolated on the, on the wide side right. of the left. Right. So as, as brilliant as Shaw has been and he has been, and you say, is it worth Shaw being that good for Sancho being a passenger sometimes? Yeah, I guess sometimes, yeah, it, it has been worth it because the progression of the team as a whole and Shaw as a, an individual sort of bites that and it's up to Sancho to step up but you saw what can happen if a, if there's movement around that player and this is what we've talked about a few times on this podcast it's about the selflessness of players and I don't think a lot of our players have got that but Ericsson certainly does Bruno does to an extent actually he's going to make an intelligent off the ball runs if he can see the picture of something that's happening but by and large we don't have many of those players who make those kind of selfless runs so as yeah. soon as you have someone like Ericsson who understands that his in-game intelligence is so superior to, to most other players, I, I'm not taking any of the credit away from Sancho because he was incisive and deliberate and he took that opportunity very well. Which but we want I, to see from him, don't we? Exactly, yeah. And and we've talked about his sort of plan A and plan B and his, what I have and his reluctance to use a plan B and always go back to a plan A. So to see him just come in and do something like we saw so many times that he did for Dortmund, and maybe that's a case of other players stepping up to the plate and and literally just one off the ball run makes Sancho look like a completely different player. And I hope that that's something that Ten Hag picks up in, like his next session, shows a video of that goal and just says, look, everyone's got this responsibility. I'm not saying that it absolves Sancho of everything. What I'm saying is in this case, look look what happens if one of you runs around it creates a lot of play, a lot of creates a bit of space for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for him yeah. to for, for him to actually do something, yeah. which we know that. And he he's can a do. really good finisher as well. I mean, he was scoring double figures, 15, 16 goals a season for Dortmund. Yeah, he is a really good finisher, and give him that space, and he is going to score goals. I, I've been stunned at how few goals he's scored for United, really, given how good he is. But but that was great. And then the second one, I mean, better in a way. It's just a Bruno. Like if you watch him, he he somehow digs the ball out from under his feet and plays this sixty-yard pa- pass into sure. space, and and uh, Rashford got Romero isolated. Romero, who spent most of the game trying to pick a fight with people, at one point he tried to pick a fight with Val Veghorst. I'm like, I'm not sure you're going to win this one, mate. <laughs> got really in his face. I mean, he he is to bastardize a quote. He could start fighting in an empty room, can he? That guy, yeah. but but R- Rashford isolated him and. A great thing about Rashford in this kind of form, and especially with the ball in front of him, it doesn't matter, left foot, right foot, this was left foot. He yeah. could have gone either way, and Romero had... He was twisted blood, wasn't he? Trying to work out which way Rashford was going to go, and a, another great finish as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And two really, really good goals. Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was a fantastic take, and I think Rashford, 
he'd had one opportunity earlier where he couldn't get the ball out of his feet or it maybe come to him on the off turn and he just couldn't sort of spin quick enough. But that one, yeah, like you said, he, he got the space and he, he did so well to sort of manipulate it and, and, and fairly brave as well. I mean, sometimes you, you might think it's with our players, if they take on a, a decision that looks as brave as that and then finishes with conviction, but if they don't finish, you say it's foolish because or wasteful, do you know what I mean? A player doing something that they're not normally uh, renowned for. But he did really well and, and finished with the kind of confidence that maybe you might not have expected of Rashford, considering he's gone four games without a goal. So it was nice to see him. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to see the shoulders drop that... We're all watching. We're all watching all the time. Like, Rashford, for all the goals and the way that he's played, I mean, look, I'm on a podcast with Paul Parker every week, not name-dropping, but Paul says every week that like, he's not convinced about Marcus's form. And I'm inclined to mostly agree with him in terms of the way that he plays without the goals. Like sometimes you look at him and you think, well, yeah, there's not much to argue against. It doesn't look like a big threat when he's not scoring. He's not inflicting that much damage. He's not a constant threat. But then when he does score the goals, it's hard to like against Betis and it's 1-0 away and it's a magnificent goal. It's hard to argue against his productivity. What I'm saying yeah. is, like, like tonight, obviously, there, there's no argument against that because he scores an absolute thunderbolt yeah, of a goal. It's 29 for the season across all yeah. competitions. I think it's something like 40 goal contributions, if you goals and assists, and I may be slightly off of my numbers here, but something like that. It's a, it's a great return. It's a really great return, and he he was even doing number nine things for a while yeah. there. Back to goal, turning, spinning, bringing other players into play. I mean... It, it's not a real stretch to say maybe he's a little better better at that than Bout Vekhorst even. <laughs> oh, Came on and uh, yeah, didn't do a lot. Poor Vout. Yeah, like I said, I don't think the subs were great. And if there's one thing, we at the start of the season, when we were tracking every tiny decision that Tanag was making, it was like sort of micro-analysis of like, he got to the point where it's every single substitute. Is he doing this right? Is he doing that right? The timing of them, the timing, the 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 exact naming of the selection, and where where and how he was naming the players, all that sort of stuff. We were analysing it and saying, has he made an error there? Has he has he done something bad there? And all of the time up until the the return of the league and all that sort of stuff, we were sort of saying, well, he hasn't really made maybe one or two errors that he rotated the side against Sociedad, and you would have thought. Maybe he shouldn't have done that. And, yeah, I just think maybe tonight, well, the last couple of weeks, you could have questioned the subs sometimes, the timing of them, the the way that, like, two players would come on at once and it disrupt the rhythm. And you give some kind of leeway with that, with the fact that we've had such a busy calendar and he has to make the changes at some point. It just feels that when he's done it, it's been at a pivotal time when there could have been like an extra five or ten minutes and would that extra five or ten minutes really have cost us in that moment considering the fact that in those five or ten minutes, let's say severe at home, if you'd just waited an extra five or ten minutes to kill the sting, take the sting out of the game, don't bring Bruno off, don't, you know, because he wasn't going to play in the next game, don't, I forget the other player that he brought off at the time, but 
oh, it might have been Anthony, or oh, Anthony came off just a little bit later. Just don't bring them off. Just give them a little bit longer. Is it that five or ten minutes going to make such a critical difference in, in the cut? Now it's made a critical difference to the complexity of the season because we're out of the Europa League. Would it have made a, a big difference on night? Yes, in terms of I think it would have given us more of a threat that Sevilla didn't feel emboldened to come on to us. I'm not really wanting to go yeah. over that game so much, but what I'm talking about is like games like tonight, you take Ericsson off, you're bringing Fred on, you are losing composure of the ball in the middle and it immediately emboldens Spurs to think, all right, we, we've got something that we can go at here. And don't get, like, maybe, maybe like no, I said. No, no. I, I think I, I understand why he makes that change because... Ericsson flags after 60 minutes and I guess he's thinking it's the physical the physicality of United's midfield that was failing yeah. but actually it turns out when we saw the rest of the game it was also the lack of control that was a problem and and yeah. and maybe maybe he got that wrong maybe it was Sabitzer would have been a better choice there because he has just that little better yeah. balance with the ball but I mean, we're second guessing stuff for the most part we can say that Ten Hag has got most things right, and and he is constantly trying to compromise with a squad that is not as good as we'd like it to be. I mean, it's it's a deep squad in terms of just how much money has been spent on it, but it's not a deep squad in terms of the quality we'd like, and and we see that when we get a few injuries and suspensions, and he can't get his perfect team together. I mean, it's a compromise from the start, isn't it? Because Ericsson's coming as a number eight and pretty much never played as number eight before in his life. (laughs) And I mean, he certainly didn't do that at Brentford last season, didn't do it into, he was basically a forward at Spurs. So yes, lots and lots of compromises and, and Ten Hag is, is trying to navigate his way through it. And of course we question him when it doesn't quite work out. I'm not sure. I, the two-two versus Severe at home. I think a lot of that was on Ten Hag. Yeah, I, I, I think he got that one wrong tonight. I'm not sure. I mean, was Anthony having such a good game that you couldn't take him off? No, nah, I don't think so. Was Ericsson likely to flag? Probably. So it's uh, it's hard to say it would have changed completely if he'd made slightly different substitutions here or there. I'm I'm more looking at those players and going, how can you drop your level? Let your level yeah. drop so much against a broken opposition. Yeah, he was. He wasn't like he wasn't like it was a brilliant Spurs comeback. Don't get me wrong. I mean, in terms of like being two 0 down and two two, it was a great comeback. But in terms of their performance, I don't. They were still vulnerable at the back. They still showed that sign. And if United had been a little bit more clinical or a bit, little bit less lackadaisical in the play, if they'd shown a little bit more composure in that second half, and, and you're quite right. I mean. I've been Casemiro's biggest fan and he's been pretty poor since he came back and tonight was no different. I thought Ericsson was probably one of the better players until he started to sort of tire a bit. I don't think we've seen the consequences of that. I just think like it's like all naturally assumed all well like Ericsson's getting a bit knackered, better bring him off. I don't think we've seen you know what I mean, the consequences as as to say would another five or six minutes of Ericsson have been worse than Another five or six minutes more of Fred, but <laughs> well, true. But but you know this this is the management that we're dealing with at the moment. In terms of, I don't, I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at Tenark saying he made a mistake. I'm just saying he's learning about his squad, and these are the decisions that he's going to be making. And to return to the very original point I was making about this, this could be, it's a bad result. It's a, it's a decent result in terms of the league. 
it's a, it's a bad result in terms of where they've been playing and the way that they've been playing and the results that they've been getting and the vulnerability that they've been showing. It's, it's not necessarily a bad result in terms of it being a reminder. I'm not saying we need a million reminders of, of the players and what they can and can't do, but I, I think it probably doesn't do Tenaga a massive disservice to have reminders of that going into the summer, the closer that we get to the end of the league. I'm season. sure he's going to have a, a really clear idea about how he'd like to change the squad. I guess, maybe that's a good segue to talk about some other stuff this week, unless you have any other thoughts on the game. I mean... He Ted Hag after the game called it a good draw, which bigger context it really is. I mean, the idea that Spurs can make up six points on us—they mm. got five games, so we got seven. Seems unlikely. Seems yeah. unlikely. So, the um, in that, in that context, yeah, yeah. And obviously, he was disappointed in the second half performance. I don't think he used those words, but. The squad makeup for next season is going to depend a lot on the takeover. There's been some developments this week, hasn't there, with, well, two reports. One, that final bids are expected and preferred bidder may be named as early as next week. And that will be on the basis of, of one, Joel and Avram's ego, and two, how much money the bidders are offering them, I guess. I'm not sure in which order is most important to these guys. And then the, the other interesting bit of news was it seems to be that Ratcliffe, Ineos, and I'm just reading between the lines of various reports, no insider knowledge at all here, are prepared to offer the Gimps uh, an opportunity to stay at the club, not in a controlling capacity, but in some kind of equity ownership, maybe up to 20%. It could be much more than that. Otherwise, they'd have a controlling um, controlling number of shares in terms of the vote, So, which I'm going to say won't go down well with fans, yeah. particularly. To, to have them hanging around like a bad smell in the lift. Yeah, it's a it's a difficult one. I've also I, I can't pretend that I know as much as you about it. I, I read fleetingly there was something to do with Class B shares and and the power of shares and stuff like that. And the, yeah, yeah it, the it, Class B have ten times the voting rights. So the Glazer family own sixty nine percent of the shares and have ninety something percent of the voting rights. And as soon as they're sold, they convert to Class A, not the good kind of Class A folks. This kind of class A, and sorry, <laughs> I can I can hear Paul's eyes rolling in the back of the, his head. <laughs> Have you got a sound effect for it? I should have, shouldn't it's I? Rolling in. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, it's a dad joke about anyway, whatever. So yes, that that's why the sort of twenty percent equity would be about the max that the Glazers could retain while not retaining control. No one's going to come in and leave them in control while having 24% of the equity, mm. absolutely nobody. That would be mental. And and so, look, if... if and, and that doesn't preclude them being bought out at some other point, and it doesn't it doesn't mean that the, the debt remains, although I kind of... Yeah, there, there's a question mark for me there if they have a significant equity stake. Well, we'll see. And and it probably means, aside from a state bid, that, that to redevelop the stadium or build a brand new one, that debt would come from the public market. It's not a bad thing necessarily if you look at what Spurs have done with their stadium. It can be it can be like taking out a mortgage. You're building an asset that can drive additional revenue. So I'm I'm not gonna say debt is bad. Yeah. Like neutrally, like it depends what kind of debt. So anyway, there's all these dynamics happening. It seems like we've got the state of play is 
Qatar, we've not heard from them for a long time. They were briefing like every three seconds previously, have not been doing that. It's kind of not sure what to say about that. Uh, changes on the Ineos bid, leaving the, the Glazers an opportunity to retain some part of the club. And then we think there's at least two private equity firms, maybe three actually, who are prepared to to give the Glazers some kind of minority purchase where they buy out the other four kids and and leave the Glazers probably with controlling controlling stake of twenty five to thirty percent equity in the club, gives them more than fifty percent of the voting rights. And that's that would be okay because the structure of the deal, if it's private equity, would give those private equity bidders some kind of preferential or performance warrants, which would trigger both returns on their equity in terms of effectively an interest rate or protections against dilution or, or triggers in terms of financial performance to the club and so on. So classic private equity model. So anyway, none of these things are good, by the way. No. <laughs> really. No, I, I would say, and not that this is good or positive, but there was a period before the Glazers took over where they, or Malcolm Glazer had substantial amount of shares and obviously that that was a, a progression towards the takeover yeah but he but he wasn't owner of the club and no. it was quite disruptive actually wasn't it at that time where they yeah. had different factions fighting no and... yeah absolutely but what i'm saying is it was still a percentage a percentage of time where where that happened and, and yes it, it was it was unsettling it was an unsettling period because it was building towards the takeover and that was what the the end goal was. That's obviously not going to be the case this time around. I, I don't pretend to know that much about the circumstances around the takeover with the debt, whether or not the the terms of any takeover would require... I have read some things where they're saying that if Ineos took over or if Ratcliffe took over, that there's an obligation in there that the debt, by by virtue of the takeover, is... Not necessarily extinguished. I don't mean that, but like it's sort of passed on to a third party and it's re- it's refinanced and all that sort of stuff. So it doesn't. Well, I, I would say that they will almost certainly retire the the current debt and leverage elsewhere. Yeah, I would. I would almost certainly guarantee that. And and I actually think I've seen. I, I mean, we did a, a previous pod with Andy Green on this, just to, but just to clarify again, my reading of that is. You, you'd expect to see some leverage on on Ineos's side, not because they can't afford it. It's a sixty billion euro a year company, and Ratcliffe has got a let's call it fifteen billion pounds worth of uh, wealth. Can certainly afford it, but it's cheaper. It's just you leave cash, and you use that cash for day to day operations, and and you leverage elsewhere. I think it's a very 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 different kind of debt. The the debt the Glazers have done. The Glazers couldn't afford to buy the club. Ratcliffe yeah. certainly can, and yeah. it has a lot more options for financing down the line. So I'm less concerned about that. I would expect there to be leverage somewhere, but likely not on United's books if Ratcliffe took over. Now, stadium refinancing, I think that would be different because you'd refinance against the asset. So let's just say they rebuild Old Trafford at 800 to a billion pounds i mean looking looking at similar size stadiums in the u.s where they've done a, a real refurbishment it's about that much or a couple of billion for a brand new stadium 
that would almost certainly leverage in order to finance that. I wouldn't be surprised at that at all, but that's okay because United would use the increased profits to afford it. Thank you for explaining that for idiots like me. Oh, I'm guesstimating. It's not an explanation. Guesstimating. Thanks for the guesstimation. The other thing I would point or remark upon as a supporter and a supporter only, there has been such a sort of political battle between United supporters, particularly over the last year since it was emerging, or the last six months since it was emerging that there was a, a Qatari interest in, in in owning the club. And, you know, everyone's sort of been battling with that. If there had been a solution offered two years ago, so it's two years since the Super League nonsense, so two years since that and, and one, well, eight, eight or nine months since... Uh, the Glazers first put out the idea that they would sell the club. So in that period of time, if this option had been put on the table where Ratcliffe was coming in and he was a he's a multi-billionaire, he's a United supporter, he's got all the cash, and regardless of how it's sort of refinanced, in terms of like being sensible about it, like obviously the debt has got to be dealt with in a, in a business kind of way because it's a, a substantial, significant debt. But but the conditions of that were that the Glazers would remain on the club books as sort of minority directors, and yes, they would have some voting rights, but there would be a new owner of the club, and he would be significant wealthy enough to either put some money in or allow the club to sort of exist on its own laurels and just sort of move forward with that. Most people would have taken that, regardless of the difficulties because it was a better solution than what the one that we currently have people have got sidetracked and their heads have been switched by the idea that you know Qatari takeover is debt free and all that sort of stuff I'm not here to make a judgment call on what anyone thinks about the way that they want this takeover to go what I'm going to say is that this is another option on the table and glazes out which has been the the cry for twelve or thirteen longer years, twenty years basically since yeah. since that, so like eighteen years. This is a really it's a strong alternative to that, and I don't want people to. All right, not say I don't want because that's too strong a term for it. I just feel that I hope that people are open minded about all the different solutions on the table. I mean, you you are there because you've talked about the Glazers. We've talked about many many times. We've talked about the ownership of the club, and now you're talking about the restructuring of the finance in a way that, like you just put forward, makes somewhat business sense, and it's not a, a disaster of a situation for United to be in. And I, I think there's a lot of people if offered that, like kind of compromise at the start of the season or at any point in the last 10 years, they would have bitten your hand off for it. And it does look appealing now to some people because of the fact that City are over there with endless amounts of cash. And I just think that's not how things are are supposed to be. And I still feel and hope, regardless of what the takeover, how how it goes, is that United are, like it or not, we are somewhat of a political model in the British game more than any other club. I'm, I'm not saying that whether or not that ends up with us having to take the right or, or something that someone would say is the right or wrong way with the ownership. What I'm saying is we are seen as a political model. In terms of the way that it, it 
it moves forward in United operating as a football club. I'd be quite happy to see us just move on operating with the finances that we generate and without any kind of investment, even if that means new stadiums and stuff like that. Like you just said, debt might have to be taken out to build a new stadium. And that's a different conversation because I wouldn't want that. But either way, debt would have to be taken out to rebuild or rebuild Old Trafford or, or build a new stadium completely. So... Again, different conversation, but debt would start to be taken out. But United, in their state of being an operating football club that doesn't have the debt leverage on it, should be able to afford that. And this kind of solution certainly can, yeah. And and this kind can. of this yeah. kind of solution, ownership solution, provides that kind of endgame for us. And I just think people have got em- embedded into their camp of it's either going to remain the Glazers, it's going to be Ratcliffe, and there's going to be well, even I don't even understand the argument against Ratcliffe under, other than that he's sort of like this middleman that is not the Qatari people and the Qataris like wiping the deck completely and then obviously people have just abandoned every other conversation that's connected to that and mm. I'm not, like I said, I'm not here to have that conversation. I'm just here to say that I, I feel like this is a third thing on the table and it's only come up in the last week and I'm interested not, I'm interested as a sport to sort of see and lead where it goes because we don't know enough about it yet. And it's interesting that he's come up this late in the day, supposedly late in the day, if we don't go to a fourth round of bids. And I think the thing what I'm hoping for is just that any kind of confusion, we're in the 27th of April, any kind of confusion yeah. is kind of cleared up pretty soon because... because yeah, so- Got to yeah. start planning for the summer and next season, move on, yeah. The the Qatari thing, I mean, obviously, I've, I've been clear on that. In my personal point of view, I don't think that United should be a tool of a state's foreign policy, and that's what the club would be. So to somehow pretend that just because you have unlimited wealth, that the and, – and you have to completely disassociate yourself and just say, hey, I'm just going to focus on the entertainment – and not worry about like where and how that is happening, which we haven't done for the last 17, 18 years, right? We've been worried. We've been very focused on the owners because they're shitty owners who brought a leveraged model to the club and that's impacted the club, right? And we are very worried about the owners. And you, if, if you're going to say, well, hey, now we've got unlimited money in this hypothetical scenario of the Qataris owning the club, that that's, we don't care about that anymore because we just want the unlimited money and we're just going to focus on the entertainment. And for me, that's that's a circle I cannot square. As alongside thinking that state ownership in football is a real cancer, whatever state, and then add on top a state with a really dodgy rights record. And I think these things are an absolute no-no for me. I understand that other people don't feel like that. And happy to kind of compartmentalize them. I may be being generous there. Who knows? I mean, if it's just about the deepest pockets, the Qataris, and it is a state bid, obviously have the deepest pockets. And and you'd still imagine if if Joel and Avram can let go of their ego, that they'll they'll sell there because that's going to be the largest bid. There was another report this week that said, as part of the fourth round of bids or the final round of bids. I mean, who knows? that the the parties as part of the kind of KYC process had to demonstrate the 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 provenance of their money. So and this is very typical, right? Show me you got the money, show me where it came from. 
That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Where does a middle manager at a mid-sized bank get £6 billion from exactly? Hmm. I wonder. Jerry Maguire coming out. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. That's... Maybe it all stinks of the same sort of stuff that like happened with the Newcastle process and stuff like that, do you know? Can I mean, you pr- I... can you prove that you disassociated and they were well we are and they're like, Oh okay then <laughs> Did you know? oh, I don't know. It's just I know, I know. I mean the ridiculousness of uh, Newcastle currently arguing as part of the Live Golf sorry, the Saudis currently arguing as part of the Live Golf lawsuit in the US that they are in fact a state actor. This is the public investment fund and therefore should be given immunity as a result because they are a state actor. When they gave quote unquote legal assurances to the Premier League that they are not a state actor. Absolutely amazing two-facedness there. And All the, right. And the Premier League's kind of thing is like, oh, oh well, it happened then. It's like, it's done <laughs> no, it's just, I uh, mean, they, they are like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, mate. I, I haven't heard anything about that. <laughs> We've got a game at the weekend against Aston Villa who have enjoyed something of a renaissance under Unai Emery, who's proving once again that he's, he's a good manager. Yeah, and they've got that goalkeeper that everyone likes. No, he's done a great job, Emery. A really, really good job. To take over from what he inherited from Gerard and get them. I mean, I don't want to be condescending. I think they're seriously challenging for Champions League spot, and I think that's fair. Sure, to say. If, they, if they beat us at the weekend, they, they yeah. they'll be three points behind. That's yeah, seriously so, challenging. So uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say that, that they are they're in that position, and that's all down to him in his management. I think he's done great there and. Uh, whether or not that's sustainable, whether or not it's a sign of a sort of flagging league in general. But you're still going to give the managers credit for the improvement that they bring upon the teams, especially when we've had so much fun in rejoicing in the decline of other managers in the league. So you've got to give credit where it's due. And he'd only just taken over when we played against them in in November, hadn't he? Right. And they battered us. And... They're going to come to Old Trafford. They, did they win Old Trafford last season or did they, they drew Old Trafford? There was a last-minute penalty from Bruno which went into the Stratford end, so maybe they won. Maybe, yeah. Maybe they won. I'm I, totally blanking. Was that a 1-0 win for them? Yeah, I think the, the big guy scored it from a corner quite near the end and then we had the yeah. penalty and then, then blazed it over. Well, um, they've, they've won eight of their last ten in the Premier League. Yeah, so they're going to come... The, the thing is that they're going to come with fearlessness. Do you know it doesn't matter how they play. So they're not gonna to play to shut up shop and get a point because there's no point in that. They're gonna play for the win. They're gonna try and sense the vulnerabilities that they know that United have got. They do right. have a fair bit of pace and physicality in the side. Yeah, um, walking scoring goals super yeah. quick. And they're gonna to come to Old Trafford and give us a game. I don't I know that they said Garnachum is soon to be back in the squad, so that's a so good dimension. Soon to be back in the squad just in time to go off to the Under-20 World Cup. 
Yeah, which we, is, uh, but we might get been confirmed that he's going. We might get a game out of him before he goes, and if he does, we've got to give him game time. Otherwise, how can he prove his fit to go? So, <laughs> so, so he he might be in the squad of the weekend, and that might give us a dimension to to prove provide something different to what we have been doing. Having said that, I mean, I do think all things considered, even tonight, I think Sean Lindelof, by and large as a combination and as individuals when they've been asked to play in the middle all throughout the season. I'm going to say I think they've been exceptional, both of them. I think as a partnership, yeah, they've yeah. done way more than we could have expected. I, so, I don't think it was their fault tonight. I mean, United gave up 18 shots. I think that came from midfield, mostly, giving up that many shots. So Yeah. yeah. So different, different, Different challenge against... Watkins and Wendy. I'm not sure who else will play there. They played with McGinn and Ramsey at the weekend, but may I mean, we'll see. But they've they've been playing well. Villa they scored tons of goals, although they managed to beat Newcastle three 0 the other week, didn't they? It will yeah. be a different challenge again. Well, I will say this about them is that where Newcastle looked like they could go and go, you know, like when they played against Spurs. When you saw them, yeah, all right, you were surprised at them being 5-0 up in five minutes, but you kind of weren't surprised by the intensity. Whereas Villa have got that propensity to to drop off, possibly. Do you know what I mean? Now they're in a, they're shooting a little bit higher than what they're... They're probably out of the comfort zone in terms of where they expect it to be, so maybe that's where we catch them off. Like, yeah, they bad Newcastle, but that's Newcastle are still the side who are... Above the means, if that, that's not being, I'm not saying that to be condescending. I just mean that they are probably above what even they expected to be this season, considering the drop off of yeah. Chelsea and Spurs. So they've got the Champions League spot based on the underperformance of other teams, as well might we. But Villa, I think, are that kind of team who normally should be below us and below and below Newcastle and below Chelsea and below Spurs. So you where they've got that kind of little bit in the middle, I feel like that's possibly a good opportunity for us to take them at the weekend, that they they might get a little bit overconfident. And uh, I, I hope that Ten Hag is probably looking at them and saying, all right, there haven't been bad results in the last week, but we haven't won in three games, and you really yeah. need to pull one out of the bag here. And, and if we do pull one out of the bag in these four points from these two games, that is effectively Champions League's Champions League spot. Sure, yeah. yeah. A a win would pretty much do it, I think. There's a lot of red flags hanging over this one for me. I mean, state the injuries in the squad, the state of fatigue in the squad. I think all of this, it does does not look good. There's a lot of alarms going off, given Villa's form at the moment. And somehow, Ten Hag, he's got two days, basically, to to get them sorted for this one against a, a smart, canny manager who is able to come up with particular tactical approaches to solve problems again and again and again, Emery. Are, uh, are you a fan of league? I know this one's a bit different because we played on Sunday night and we went to extra time, so we're probably grateful for it. League games being played on Thursday nights because the Chelsea no. game is going to be played on a Thursday night as yeah, well. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, all right. It's a bit of a fun stick to beat us with when we're like in the Europa. 
that's the that's the consequence of getting in the Europa. You get the piss taken out of you because you played on Thursday nights. Yeah, that's yeah. not fair. I'm not, to... I'm not a fan. I mean, I, I suppose Ten Hag was probably grateful after having away game at Sevilla and then 120 minutes yeah. in the cup to get that extra day. It just means a day less for the weekend game. So, yeah, well, it's what it is. And but but I would say that if we're not prepared for that and. I, we were good in the first half today. We were really good in the first half. It's just that and, and, and it is, we're coming down to minor quibbles, right? If we're saying that United didn't score 3-0, uh, we didn't score three at Spurs to win the game, uh, we did pull away with three goals, then, yeah, all right, you you are looking at the players for that. You're pointing squarely at them. But it's a bit of a better problem than what we had a year ago when we're saying, oh, like we just got bad and we don't even, like, got bad five, or for it, what it was at Brighton, and we didn't know where the team was going to go from there. I'm not like saying you have to compare every sort of little stone to to where we were under Ralph Rangnick, but what I'm saying is everything when we are we are I've said this so many times when we're analysing everything in a microcosm of a game or passages of a game and <laughs> criticising when we still are criticising. Oh my god bloody gets how dare you concede a goal in a game of football but we do do that and it's so it's easy to lose sight of the bigger picture and that's why i've been trying to say yeah. like you know it's a decent draw and and the good thing to take out of it was that he, the manager is fairly ruthless and he will be making those ruthless calls if he's got the sort of backing to be able to do that so um yeah and the players all right well Let's see. Good good luck at the weekend, lads. Thanks, Wayne. Are you hanging out with any celebs like, I don't know, Martin Edwards this week? Oh oh yeah, that's a good one. Thanks, Ed. No, I was <laughs> at, I, actually it was a it was a former players dinner. Like I oh, well, former players dinner, the AFMOP, Association of Former United Players. All right. If you, if you can support them, I think they are a registered charity actually, and they've got a website. Right. And that is the former players and they do they I think a lot of like medical stuff is if, yeah. if, if it's not covered by the PFA, like the the PF, the AFMOP step in to sort of deal with stuff like that, and and they are, I mean, they do a, a massive massive service to the. And we're talking like the lads who came in after Munich and stuff like that. So like loads of players who might generally be forgotten by the yeah. the United community who were nonetheless massively vital for for the club. They their yeah, kind man. of donations they they help towards stuff like that. So anyway, because well, we, we forget like players make 100, 200, 300 grand a week now. And, and you know, even 30 years ago, they, they wouldn't have made a 10% of that. Yeah. Uh, I, I, they could put like so, a, a tiny levy, like a 1% levy on the wages and put that back into the former players association. And I don't think that'd be unfair. And I think it would make a significant difference to, the lives of a lot of players who like yeah. they, they probably not probably they were, they we're talking about legends who were who, who've achieved legendary status in a way that without wanting to be unfair that these this current squad aren't going to be able to do and i'm not just right. I'm, not, I'm not doing things like say oh, modern money and all that sort of stuff but what i'm saying is they do a, an invaluable service anyway great the point, the point is martin edwards was the guest of honor last week because they were recognizing his service as chairman and I, I got a picture with Alan Keegan because I like nice. Alan, Ke- Alan Keegan. I love him to bits. He's great. And he roped me in for the picture with Martin. 
And Mark, Martin's been very kind about my writing, so no matter what anyone says, he's been not <laughs> he's been nice to me. And if someone's nice to you, that's all that matters in this world. I'm sure it'll be a bestseller when you write Farty Martin's biography, and maybe you'll reveal what happened exactly in those bogs all those years ago. No, I'm 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 being cruel to you, Paul Wayne. It's a podcast, so you can't see it. He's like, I'm not going to say anything here. I'm yanking his chain firmly. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you soon.